You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Have you ever uh, noticed that things that are powerful need to never be taken for granted? Have you ever noticed when you drive down the interstate and you get behind tractor trailers, they have those placards on them, and sometimes they'll say explosive or corrosives or, you know, those kinds of things. And they're, they're a warning to say, hey, this is, you know, this load that we're carrying has some volatile potential to do tremendous damage. It's dangerous to take for granted or neglect or ignore things that are powerful. Back uh, until the the bombs were dropped in World War II, uh, the atomic bombs in in Japan, and up until that time, the largest explosion ever that that we know in history that was was made and created by people happened in Halifax in in Canada. It was during World War I. And uh, Halifax, because of it's, a, it's an ocean port, it's a deep seawater port, and so it's kind of north and east, really, even of New York. And so it was common. Ships that were trying to make their way to Europe would kind of stop in there, refuel, do whatever they were doing, and before they made their way out across the Atlantic. And it was a time of, of war where they were, it was a, a kind of a lengthy harbor. Every night they would spread a submarine net across to keep the submarines out, you know, the German U-boats and that kind of thing. And so uh, consequently, when the net opened up in the morning, there was kind of a traffic jam. Ships were trying to get in. They had waited out in the deeper water in the harbor all night. Ships didn't quite get out in the, the night before, and they were waiting to, to get out. And so there's kind of a, quite the traffic flow. Well, on this particular day, the, uh, the SS Mont Blanc was coming into Halifax, and it was loaded with uh, munitions, with explosives. Down its cargo hole was full of explosives, and on the top deck was barrels of benzene, just highly flammable, um, you know, uh, a liquid that also would give a vapor. And, uh, and because of the traffic jam as the, the, the SS Mont Blanc made its way in, Court, the ship's kind of, you know, the way you drive, like stay in the right lane and, you know, you stay on the right and the other ship's going out or on the right and no two ships meet. Well, things got kind of messed up and jammed up that day. And these two ships began squaring off, not intentionally, but they began to get into pr- trouble. And the, the SS Emo and the SS Mont Blanc were kind of playing a game of chicken, if you will, and they couldn't get it sorted out, and they, even though they managed to slow down and last minute make course correction, they hit at a tremendous speed of like 1.5 miles an hour equivalent. I mean, just barely kind of scraped. But it was just enough that those barrels of benzene on the deck of the, the uh, SS Mont Blanc got damaged, Vapors began coming out, sparks hit, steel on steel, and they erupted in fire. And so meanwhile, the ships had drifted right up near the shore. And uh, as you all know, we're all, even though we complain about it, when there's an accident on the throughway, we're the ones slowing down and rubbernecking. Wow, look at that. Instead of just like stay in your lane and go on, you know, you people gather to watch it burn. But the average person did not know what was below deck was a cargo hold full of explosives. Twenty minutes later, there was an explosion that erupted that was equivalent to like three kilotons, 
and it leveled, I mean flattened, every building within half a mile of the, of the place. Just brick buildings, factories, and warehouses. It literally it bent steel rails. In fact, parts of the ship that were on it were found three miles away that had blown. About a mile and a half radius, every building had been deeply destroyed. It was such an explosive force. This is a deep water port that the bottom of the bay was exposed. The water swelled up and it created a 60-foot tsunami that then washed across the whole bay. Over 2,000 people died. And afterwards, everyone said, why are we letting such explosive munitions into our bay? You see, things that are powerful, it's dangerous for us to take them for granted, to neglect them, to ignore them, to not pay attention. Well, folks, the greatest power in this universe is the one we call God our Father. There is no entity, there is no person, there is nothing that has more authority, more power in this world. And even for us as followers of Jesus Christ, those in the room that have surrendered your life to Jesus and know Him as Father, He is still the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the ever-present God. And those of you that have not taken that step, all of us need to recognize that He is not a God to be trifled with. He is not a God to be taken for granted. He is not a God to be ignored, if you will. These next three chapters in 1 Samuel kind of show a picture of God really that we don't always focus or pay attention. So I'm calling this kind of the dangerous God, that God is a powerful, loving, and a gracious God, but He is also a very focused, holy, powerful God that doesn't play around. So read with me, if you would, in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 4. And let's look together at what, how the, the power of our God, that we need to have a not a terrifying fear of, but a holy, healthy respect and affection and a surrendering and a yielding to the God who made this universe just out of the, the, the merely speaking His words. The Bible says this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. If you were here last week, Samuel, God put His hand on Samuel's life. He became the new speaker, the new seer, the new prophet of God. And it was through him that he would begin speaking to Israel once again. And all of the condemnation that, he, that God spoke to Eli and his sons through Samuel are now coming to bear. And not just to them, but to all the nation of Israel. That first sentence in chapter 4 is significant and profound, so don't miss it. Now the Bible goes on. The rest of chapter 4 is the unpacking of that first sentence. The rest of it says this, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. If you know the Old Testament, the Philistines lived in the area of Palestine. In fact, that's the word Philistine and Palestine are the same words there together. And they were kind of, I think, in like the southwest portion of, of Israel. And they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines camped, encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. If you know Old Testament history, if you remember, you know, David squared up and he killed Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, but that comes later on in the story of the Bible. This is much early on. So the Philistines won that day. 4,000 men died on the field of battle. Now look what happens next in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, picture them, they're coming in defeated, they're dragging, they're wounded, they're licking their wounds, they're hurt. 
Here's what the elders of Israel said. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice they didn't say, why did the Philistines defeat us? They said, why has the God of heaven defeated us? They were confused. They asked the right question, but they came up with the wrong answer. And they asked the wrong people because they didn't really ask God. They asked each other. So they came up with a solution that was half-baked and was terrible. So here's what they did. They kind of doubled down on things. They said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They didn't really understand who God was, and they were clueless. They were treating him like a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot or a four-leaf clover. Let's bring it in, and it's going to take care of us and save the day. So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. Get the picture. This was not an idol. This was a box. Two poles on the sides. God gave very clear instructions. It was a box that would be a representation of the enthronement of God. It had two angels on the top. Inside that box was the tablets of the Ten Commandments, was Aaron's pot, or excuse me, Aaron's rod that he had used when the Jews came out of, of Israel. And it was a pot of manna that God had used to supernaturally provide. So it's a picture that God is an, an, an invisible, all-present God. That's not a statue of Him. He's not there. But it's a picture that God protects and He guides and He has a covenant relationship through those commandments with His people. And so they thought that was going to save the day, but it's the, the ark of the covenant, the relationship between God and people the God who's enthroned on the cherubim or the angels. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, these were two uh, reprobate, awful men who were absolutely abusing uh, the, the leadership that they had been given of God. So see the picture of hypocrisy. Here's the God of the universe, and here's these two jokers, these two clowns. And uh, the story, they're with it. And the story continues. In verse 5 it says this, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they, when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. They remembered a couple hundred years before that the God of Israel was the one that brought the plagues on Egypt and God with a mighty hand and a miraculous world brought them out and they said, oh no, this God is now fighting for them. We are in trouble. Double yourselves and fight again. So in verse 10, the Bible says, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel's fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The rest of chapter 4, the story unfolds. Eli, the daddy of Hophni and Phinehas, were at home. A runner came from the battlefield, you know, 
phones hadn't been invented and there were no radio communication, so it was normal. You'd, you'd have guys that were fleet of foot and they would run to give news of the battle. And so as word began trickling back in that Israel had lost just a, an unreal number of people, all the moms, so many moms and wives lost their husbands, lost their dads, and people losing their sons to battle. And Eli's there, he's 98 years old, and he hears the news of the runner, and, and the news of the runner says, the Ark of the Covenant of our God has been taken. We've been defeated, and your two sons, Eli and Hophni, are dead. And the Bible tells a story that Eli was there in a chair because apparently his health from, no joke, eating all of the rich food that he had had, it would, the Bible says he was heavy and he fell over backwards at 98, and his neck snapped and he died. Then his daughter-in-law found out that her husband had died in the battle, and she was in labor, and she heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, and that her father-in-law is dead, and her husband is dead. And she goes into labor, and the shock of all of it, and it must have been a difficult labor. We don't know all the details of it. But as her baby is being born, and her life beginning to go out of her, and the, the midwives there said, be of good cheer, you've born a son. And she said, I in essence, I can't be of good cheer. And she named the baby Ichabod, the Bible says, because the glory of God is what that means. The glory of God has departed Israel. God has turned His back and has left Israel. We're gonna, I want you to notice this morning four things of why it is so dangerous to misunderstand, to underestimate Take for granted, to take as common who the God of heaven really is. First thing I want you to notice this morning, that it is dangerous to underestimate the Word of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts right off that the word of Samuel came to Israel. Now these were not Samuel's words, these were God's words to Samuel that Samuel in turn had been speaking to the people of Israel. We only caught a snapshot, a glimpse of what he told Eli because God himself stood before him as we saw last week and he pronounced judgment that was coming to Eli's house. But that was only a mere picture of the judgment that was coming across Israel because they had ignored, they had neglected, they had turned their back on God and they had ignored the very words that God had taken time to give to them. He was the God who had given him the Ten Commandments in the first place. He was the one who had taken all the time to say, I am the God of this universe. I want you to know me, but I'm a holy God. And you've got to come to me on my terms. And my terms are nothing less than a sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice has to be given. And so they neglected that and they had reduced the God of heaven to a mere, you know, like a good luck charm or like some of the other gods of the world. And so God had been speaking to them and reaching to them. And, and it was a part of the path of God that he had had a spokesman, Samuel, speaking into the world. So when these things came, they knew that this was a fulfillment of what God was saying. Folks, you and I need to be careful that we don't underestimate, that we neglect, that we take for granted the Word of God. There's no other words in this world that will be true 100% of this time. There's no other book you can read. There's no other advice you can seek. There's none of us in this room, including me and, all, and our pastors, that all of our words will always be true. But this book is... this. The things that God has spoken in here, Jesus himself said is that heaven and earth may fail or will fail, but my words will never fail. 
Now, sometimes you and I think our world is coming to an end. Sometimes we get bad news. Sometimes we're going through things, and it feels like the world is failing, right? Because our little world is, is messed up and not going the way we want it. But this world's been spinning and running for thousands of years before you, and unless Jesus comes back, it's going to spin for thousands of years afterwards. I frankly hope not. I frankly doubt that, because I think God is up to something more than that. But God says as long-lasting as this world is, it's going to fail. But my words never, ever fail. If you want guidance in your life, if you want to know what's going on, if you want help, if you want to do things well, if you want protection, if you want any of the things that we naturally want as people, God challenges us to turn to Him to look in His Word because it is powerful. And it's wonderful when we look to it. But when we neglect it and we ignore it and we put it behind our back and live life the way we want to do, then it is a very dangerous thing. It's in essence that we're allowing the munitions to come into our harbor and the explosion, instead of going off in the world around us, it goes off in our world. And we step back and say, what happened? And God in heaven, in essence, is saying, you ignored what I said. You did what I said not to do. And that's kind of what happens. It, God is a wonderful, amazing, gracious, and forgiving, and truthful God. But He's also a true God. And His words are always true. And He's given them to us to help us. We dare not take them for granted, dare not neglect them. And two little things that I encourage you with it is to... As you approach the Bible, is number one, make sure, and even where you are today, refresh your attitude toward God's Word. How many of us as parents, whether you've got young kids at home now, or maybe your kids are older, is gone, but kind of looked at your kid and you either thought it or said it, is don't give me attitude, right? It matters, not just what you say, but how you say it. And we've all been on the other end of that where we've had the attitude and said things wrong. So we should have the attitude when reading God's Word, saying, God, I need this. God, I yield to this. I want you in my life. So come to Him with the right attitude, with a humble, and to listen and to get to know the God of heaven and to, to a clean slate every time to say, God, you speak to me. I'm the one that's messed up. I'm the one that's broken, not you. I need to hear from you. And then secondly, as simple as it is, is read it. Pay attention to it. Listen to it if you struggle to understand it. There are so many, my goodness today, folks, there are so many ways to understand what the Bible is saying. There's so many places you can go and get good advice and understand it. Just, just access those. And if you're struggling with what they are, ask one of the pastors or ask somebody else in the church, but read it. So pay attention. God, what do you want to say? What do you want me to hear in the middle of this? And God, what are you speaking to me? Help me to understand. Samuel is so filled with so many stories and so many truths in here for life. I encourage you to along the way as we're walking through the story to during the week to read it and ask God to speak to you through it, not just through our life groups or through the Sunday, but even on your own and, and pay attention to what God is telling you because it is a dangerous thing when we neglect the truths that are here and we forget them or we ignore them. It is dangerous. Second thing I want you to recognize, wasn't just the Jewish people that, that made a mistake, but they also, not only did they neglect God's Word and they underestimated His Word, but they underestimated the authority of God. See, they, they had reduced God in their mind to a much lower God than He really was. 
And we do the exact same thing. These are the people of God that He had taken time to show Himself to them powerfully, to give Himself to them, to help them to know Him, to make the way of sacrifice for them. And he, it was as good as done in God's mind that He was going to send Jesus. It was a done deal in His mind, and all the Old Testament was a picture of that. And they neglected that. And they underestimated the authority of God because they asked the right question. Huh, why did we lose to the Philistines? Our God's bigger than that. Our God delivered us from the Egyptian army. Why did 4,000 of our men not come home from battle? Right question. They got the wrong answer because they underestimated the authority of the God in heaven. You see, they had reduced God to serving them rather than them serving God. I want you to catch this, because we do this. They thought life was about them, and that God was to take care of their life, and to make it better, and to fix it, and to make it all work out, and to give them what they wanted and needed. And why is it not working? Why? It's almost like the dishwasher's broken. Huh. I loaded this thing last night. Why are the dishes all dirty? And they just started pushing more buttons. Or like we do, you know, guys, a little bit harder. You pull up a hammer, you know, whatever. And God doesn't work that way. They missed that instead of them serving God, they thought it was God's job to serve them. Now, folks, here's how we do this today ourselves. Well, I prayed about it. I should be able to get this because I prayed about it. I deserve this. And we're not careful. We go to God not saying, God, what do you want? We go to God saying, here's what I want. And here's the three reasons why I think this is right, God. And here's why you ought to do this, God. And God, I'm hurting. And God, I don't want to hurt. And you ought to work this out for my good. And you ought to do all these things. And God is sitting here saying, this isn't good. The water's flowing the wrong way in the pipe. For in your house, you want water to flow the right way. You don't want your sewer line kind of backing up, making a mess into the world. It gets kind of stinky that way. And so often, we even who have surrendered our life to Jesus and trusted, put our hope and our faith and trust in Him, we're not careful. We revert back to old habits we think that the world does revolve around us and that God in heaven is supposed to just serve us to do what we want. And folks, it is dangerous to underestimate the authority of the God of the universe. We're reminded subtly in this is this is the Ark of the Covenant, the God who lives and dwells above it, who made this universe. And you your job and my job is to yield and to bow before Him. Well, Sean, does that mean God doesn't want to take care of me? Of course not. He loves you. You've surrendered to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to take care of you. But let's face it, we're all still like little kids that we want stuff that is not good for us. Just like every little kid that walked this planet has always wanted something that wasn't good for them, and that's why... God gave them a mom or a dad or a guardian, somebody to take care of them to say, no, that's not good. I'm not going to give that to you. Well, why not? Why? And we do the same to God, and God's like, the answer is, is because it's not good for you, and I say so. 
So folks, we probably from time to time need a reminder that we serve God and He does not serve us. He loves us, but to make sure we check in our heart that we are yielded before God and not the other way around. When it goes the other way around, we get mad and we get, we get confused. Let's say it this way, like, well, God's not working. This isn't working. Just like the Jews, like, they were confused. We get confused. Well, I thought God's job was to take care of this. Why isn't it? And then we can go from confusion to anger, frustration, depression, when our world's not working out the way we think it is, and what's really underneath those is that we've got it backwards. That we think that God's job is to serve us, not that we serve Him. Kind of what the video men that Tony Evans talked about. If we can get this right, that God owns everything in this universe, and we own nothing, including our lives, it kind of straightens out all kinds of messes in our world and our heart. So don't underestimate the authority of God. Third thing I want you to recognize, not only did the Jews not understand who God was, but the Philistines didn't understand it either. In chapter 5, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The Philistines are like, yeah, we defeated. Our God defeated the God of Israel. We're better than those Egyptians, and we defeated them. So they take this Ark of the Covenant, this box that's a... That's a representation of the presence and the enthronement of God in this world, not, not an idol. It wasn't a representation of God. God made it very clear not to do that. And they took this Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple to their god, Dagon. And if you know the story, so they put it in there. It's kind of like their little trophy of war, like, yeah, our god beat up on your god. It's kind of like stealing the other team's mascot a little bit, but maybe a little bit more. And so the next morning they come in there and they look and they find their God knocked off its pedestal. Their statue is knocked down and it's laying down on the floor. And they're kind of like, huh, how'd that happen? This would have been a heavy thing. Like you're talking like cranes moving it kind of thing. And so because their God really was not a God, needed a little help, they picked him up and put him back on their pedestal. And the next morning they come in, and not only is their God laying face first before the Ark of the Covenant of God, his hands are cut off and his head's cut off, he's decapitated. And they're like, whoa, there's some bad juju. This God of the Ark of the Covenant, Israel's God, is bigger than our God, and we've got a problem. And God began sending a disease into that, that town, the, to, into Ashdod, and we don't know exactly what it is, but it involves some sort of tumor or boil. It involved mice. Some people, it always kind of cracks me up a little bit. They're like, like well, maybe they just had really bad hemorrhoids. And I'm like, like really? Because later on, like, people are dying. And I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I don't recall too many deaths by hemorrhoids. Like, it can make your life kind of miserable, but, like, I guess that would be a really big one. I don't know. But anyway, I, some have thought maybe it's the bubonic plague, because I guess there's like boils or something with that in mice, so we don't know. But bottom line, people began dying, and the city of Gath were like, or Asha, we got to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. This God is on us. And so they get all their leaders together, like, what do we do? And they're like, well, we'll go send it to the next place. I think it was the town of Gath. And they send it there. Then all of a sudden, the same thing starts happening to that city, and the people are like, whoa, this is bad. We got to get it out of here. Let's Let's send it on to the next one. And, and they're about to send it there. And those people are like, whoa, they're sending the plague to us. We can't handle this God. This God who brought all of the diseases and plagues to Egypt is here and He is on us. See, God 
doesn't need you and me to take care of him. He's well able to take care of himself. If we understand that, that will go a long way, not only in our life, but in our understanding of the world and our country and our government. God is plenty capable of taking care of himself. And so they said, what do we do? And they kind of got their minds together and said, well, here's the deal. Let's put this, this ark on, the, on a cart and let's put together two milk cows that have never been had a yoke on them, never had an authority on them. You know, there's a training. If you're breaking a cow to learn to pull an ox, and cows don't naturally want to do it any more than a horse does. So let's put two that have never had a yoke on them, and they've never had a yoke on them together. And if they run around like crazy animals and just pulling each other, then we know it's just a coincidence. There's just some sort of funky plague that's going on. But if they pull and they take this Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, we know that God has been behind this. If you know the story, they put a box in there and they put some golden images in there of their tumors. Still, I can't imagine a golden image of hemorrhoid. I decided to kind of like, I just I struggle with that one and golden mice, you know. And They put it in the cart and the Bible says that those oxen made a straight line for Israel. And the Philistines followed them along. I'm like, where's it going? And it went right to the people of Israel, and they rejoiced because they got the Ark of the Covenant back. Here's the thing. The Philistines underestimated the power, almighty power of God in heaven. Not only did the Jews underestimate God, they underestimated God. See, they thought God was a God that they could manipulate, that they could show that their God was more powerful and the Jews were manipulating God too. Like, let's just bring the covenant in. We can live however we want to, but God should answer our prayers. And the Philistines underestimated the power. They are busy trusting another God. And by the way, this should get your attention too. They saw the miracle. They're the one that set up the scientific test. Hey, if this happens, then we know that God is powerful. That day, they should have all converted to, to Judaism. They should have said, forget this Dagon. He's got no power. I'm going to convert to this God. I want to join this guy's team. And they didn't. Foolish on their part. They underestimated the power of God. See, you and I do that too still to this day. Even I don't care how long you've known Jesus and how long ago you surrendered to Him. You and I are today still fully capable of putting our trust in another power besides God in heaven. And we do it in subtle and small ways without paying attention. And we trust the other things around us. And we look to them and we put our hope in other things. And those things eventually fail because God always takes it personally. And God will always knock the idols down out of our life. And we don't like it. We kind of get angry. It kind of messes in our world. But what God's trying to say is like, yeah, you can't trust in anything. I'm the one that's powerful. I'm the God who made you. I'm the God who saved you from your sins. I'm the one you should look to, not anybody else. You see, God is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-holy God. He wants us to trust His Word. He wants us to not to try to manipulate Him because you cannot manipulate Him in your prayers. You can't make Him do what you want to do no matter how much it hurts or whatever you want in your life. And neither can you trust in something other than Him. He alone is the one that you can turn to. He alone is the one who's the healer. He's alone is the one to work through the mess in your world. And it's dangerous when you ignore all of that. And it's dangerous when you try to do your own thing because you end up 
in your own mess. And then the fourth thing, that God is a dangerous God. So that Ark of the Covenant then goes, and the oxen carry it straight on to the people of Israel. And the Jews, are, or the Philistines are busy watching. And those people still didn't get it. Look what the Bible says. And this is people, it went to the people who lived in Beth Shemesh. If I recall, Beth is house, I think Shemesh, I think is a son, like house of the sun. I don't know, my Hebrew is more than rusty, but I think that's what that is. I should have looked it up before I talked about it. But verse 19, the Bible says this, and he struck God talking about some of the men of Beth Shemesh. So the ark comes there, they're happy, they're there, it's there a little while, and God struck some of the men. And here's why, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. They did what most of us do. Huh, I wonder what's in this thing. Oh, it's just a box, and you know, they kind of peek, right? They thought God was a God to be trifled with. They underestimated the holiness of the presence of God in heaven. The Bible says He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? They weren't any better than Philistines. Nobody can be around. This is dangerous. This is dynamite in the harbor. We don't want this around here. Let's send God out to somewhere else. And they finally shipped him off to Kiriath-Jerim, which he stayed there till David builds the temple, or the Ark of the Covenant stayed there. The Bible says this, that from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They grieved after the Lord. We're watching Eli and his sons, the people of Israel, the Philistines, the people in Beth Shemesh. Nobody really was paying attention and understanding who God really was. Despite all of their religion, despite all of their prayers, despite all of the manipulations, all the things they were trying to do, they missed it. You see, God is a holy God. And it is especially dangerous to underestimate the holiness of our God. We sang about the holiness of God this morning. This is the God that when Moses came into the, the, the manifestation of the presence of God in the burning bush, he said, Moses, take your shoes off because you are on holy ground. You are not fit to come to me as you are, Moses. You need to recognize your heart right now doesn't even understand how to process who I am properly. You need to see me as a holy God. This is the God when Isaiah came. The Bible says that the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees a room filled with the glory and the holiness of God. And he sees the angels describing the holiness of God as they, say, as they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You see, we serve a God to whom you and I cannot be in His presence and survive. It is dangerous to lower who God is to your level and my level. It's not that we bring God down to our level to understand Him. Instead, actually, what God says, I need you to bring you up to my level so that you can know me. 
Even to this day, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, God is a holy God, and the only reason that you can even be in the presence of God, that He can hear your prayers, is because of the righteousness of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that has covered your sins. That's the only reason that you and I can ever have a relationship with God, even to this day. It's why as Christians, as followers of Jesus... We can come to a holy God in confidence, not in fear, not like these individuals like, whoa, this is a dangerous God. we got to get him out of here. But we recognize the holiness of our God. And we don't lower it to our world. Now, folks, it's easy for us to do this because we think, well, God doesn't really care about every little thing. This is no big deal. Oh, that's dangerous. Never presume upon the grace of God in heaven. Folks, there's a difference between trusting in the grace of God that He forgives you of your sin and presuming upon it, saying, well, I know, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway because I know God will forgive me. It's no big deal. Or somehow feeling like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to play over here I'll make up for it over here. And that somehow we do this bartering thing with our sin with God. You see, these Jews were coming to God on their terms, and they were playing peekaboo. And God says, I will have none of that. You have to come to me on my terms. And my terms are nothing short of the, of the holiness, the sacrifice of the blood of my son Jesus and it's only what He did on the cross that you could ever get to know Me. But make no mistake, I cannot be manhandled, I cannot be manipulated, I am not a God to be trifled with. And folks, it's easy if we're not careful to get a little familiar in, some way, in a bad way with God. God wants us close. He wants us to relate to Him as, as His children, and He's our Father, and He loves us, and He wants us to climb in His lap, as it were, and to cast our cares and our burdens on Him. But folks, He is still the holy God of this universe that we can't manipulate, that we cannot control, that we come to Him on His terms, and that we don't for one second underestimate His power and His authority in our life that we yield to Him. And so God in this one event is trying to straighten out all the messed up people from Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and their families and Israel and the Philistines. And folks, it's the same stuff that you and I battle to this day. So some of you here this morning, have you've been brought up, you know, you've gone to church your life, and you're like the Jews that didn't know who He is. Maybe he's more of a curiosity. Maybe you've prayed to other entities besides God in heaven. Maybe you've trusted in other things and other saints or other avenues besides God. And God says, I'll have none of that. And maybe you, this morning, your step, as you've listened to the story, is that you need to yield your life to God of heaven that the only way you can come to Him is through Jesus' blood who is paid and on the cross for you. And if you trust Him as your Lord and Savior, not trying to be a good person, not trying to peek into the presence of God yourself on your own goodness, 
but on the righteousness of Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, you've surrendered to Him. And, and, and so if you haven't done that today, your next step is to trust Him. Because until then, you don't have the blessing of God in your life. You don't have God's protection in your life. And God's glory has not only departed, it never even showed up in your life. But when you do know Jesus and you've surrendered to Him, maybe you've been taking God for granted along the way. Or maybe you haven't, or maybe you just needed a little reminder or refresher to kind of stir that up in your heart. Because make no mistake, when you and I treat God and we try to manipulate Him, or we try to come to Him on our terms, or we try to we presume upon His holiness, then God says, I'm removing my glory from you. And I'm removing my blessing from your life. And the first step back is say, Holy God of heaven, forgive me. Forgive me for taking you for granted. Forgive me for trying to neglect your word, what you've told me to do. Forgive me complaining and getting angry when things didn't work out my way and it didn't work out my way because I wasn't even paying attention to your word. So maybe God needs to refresh or remind you, all of us, to just kind of stir that up, that He's a loving, gracious God and He wants to be with us, but He is still the supreme power in this universe that you and I need to have a holy fear, not a not afraid of Him, but a holy respect that draws us close to Him. And I don't want to lower the presence of God when I say this, but you know, it's kind of like the boxes that you get when they say handle with care. We need to handle God with care. Now make no mistake, we can never handle God. But we need to treat Him with the wonder and the glory and the worship and the respect and the love and the devotion and the appreciation that He deserves. And when that's in our heart, then we can go through the day and through the week and through the month and through the lifetime confident that we're serving God and not trying to make Him to serve us. So what do you need to respond to God with today? What is He kind of whispering in your heart this morning? I want to challenge you to respond to Him. So won't you stand as we kind of sing and, and close out our service this morning? Father, we are grateful for the love and grace and mercy of the God of heaven. Thank you, Father, for your protection. Thank you that you love us. And Lord, it's easy to sing and talk about the love of God and the grace of God. And Lord, sometimes we do need a reminder of the holiness and the power and the majesty and the authority. Lord, all of those truths are the same together. And so, Father, help us to not make the mistake or to stop making the mistake that we just read about, that you are the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-holy God of this universe. And Lord, what a privilege it is for us to know you and to serve you through your Son, Jesus, who died for us. Lord, it's only because of him that we can even hope to be on the right team or the right side of that equation to where we don't experience judgment and condemnation, but instead we have your grace, your presence, your understanding and forgiveness in our life and your protection and your provision and all of those things that we crave. But Lord, we get them not because we deserve them, 
but simply because of who you are. So Lord, help us to get that right, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at River of Life Church or find us online on Facebook, YouTube, or at riveralbany.com.